If you know your weaknesses, they're not weaknesses anymore. It doesn't have to be agony to get better at the instrument. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Stand Partners for Life. And I am here tonight with some very special guests, so actually not my usual Stand Partner for Life, Akiko. Um, she's, she's doing some kid stuff tonight and she has cleared the way for me and two very special guests um, and good friends. And if you hear some crickets, it's because we're in the great outdoors just in enjoying a fine Pasadena evening here. But I have with me uh, Kate Reddish, who is not only a violist extraordinaire, but also director of operations for the high-level program that I teach during the year called the Virtuoso Master Course. And we've been working together for several years on that. And we're thrilled to have with us also Kirsten Tenney, who is a violinist and who has been with me for several versions, all versions, in fact, of the Virtuoso Master Course, the VMC. And uh, Kate and I really wanted to talk with Kirsten today about a big project that she has taken on and that's just about finished, which is very exciting because that's been years in the making. And to, yeah, figure out what makes her tick. Um, so welcome, Kate, and welcome, Kirsten. Thanks so much for being in Pasadena. Thanks, Nathan. Thanks for having us. Um, so let's, uh, let's get an idea, Kirsten, of how you started the violin. Everybody, you know, that's always the first thing people ask me. How old were you when you started? And <laughs> who made you start? Who made you practice? Yeah, so how I started playing the violin. Well, I guess first I should say that my mom plays the violin and several of my aunts and an uncle play the violin. So it's part of, I think, my family heritage and I grew up in a small town in rural Arizona and we had a school orchestra program so I started when I was 10 in my school orchestra program uh, it was a summer program and that's how I started I and love uh, when people are able to start in the public schools because that, that's getting more and more rare I was a public school starter myself Yay. yeah <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I started, so I, piano was actually my first instrument, so I started when I was six, and then um, I started in the school orchestra program. I remember when I got my first violin, we rented it, and I went to my bedroom and I played around and I thought it sounded amazing. I played some fiddle tune and I went out and I was like, Mom, listen! <laughs> and so I played and she said, oh, that's really good. Aww. So, very encouraging. And um, <clears throat> so when I was 13, my, uh, there's a community orchestra that my parents both played in. And my, um, this man named Clarence Shaw, he lived in Sedona, which is three hours away. He became the orchestra, the symphony conductor. And so he came and started teaching violin lessons in my town. So that's when I started taking violin. So how long were you working completely on your own? I would say three years. And in that time, were you, were you just playing by ear or were your, your parents maybe were helping a little bit with? So they, so I kind of feel like I had a, 
a nice carefree childhood as far as violin goes. I would take my violin to school, I would put it on my bike, my handle of my bicycle, and I'd ride my bike to school with the violin, and then we'd have orchestra after school. And then I'd bring my violin home. I didn't really practice the violin. I would practice the piano. That was my instrument that I had to practice. <laughs> and <laughs> so it wasn't until I was 13 when I started taking lessons that I actually started to really practice the violin. And did you have uh, friends who were playing, you know, friends in school, similar age? I did. Everyone, <laughs> it's kind of funny. Um, so we had our little after school orchestra and I was the first violinist, you know, first chair violinist. And everyone would say, oh, we're not as good as Kirsten. <laughs> so we're going to sit. So they made themselves like in second violins and like third violins. <laughs> <laughs> Glorified violas, I know. Um, Glorified? What are you talking about? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. That's a whole nother, that's a whole nother story right there. But um, so I, I did have friends. Yeah, I did. I had, yes, I did have friends. <laughs> like self-affirmation. <laughs> like, I do have friends. Um, but yeah, so I did have friends. But it wasn't, it wasn't really until I started taking violin lessons with Mr. Shaw that I, I feel like this network kind of happened of people that also wanted to be good at the violin. Mm -hmm. mm. So that's, he really created an amazing environment and so dedicated. Well, it gets a lot more fun when there are other people around. Mm -hmm. um, I know my own daughter, who's nine, is discovering that now. I mean, all she's had so far is learning the Suzuki songs with her teacher and her dad practicing <laughs> with her, which is especially not fun. But now that she's in a class, you know, a sight reading and musicianship class, she really looks forward to that. And I, I know that makes her motivates her in her, her solo practice too, because she wants to be better when she goes to play with the other kids and all that. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at middle school age when you, when you started taking lessons. How, how was that uh, at first? So my very first lesson, I wasn't too sure what I thought about taking violin lessons. I, I'd been studying piano and I was pretty good at piano. And so I just remember I just remember these feelings of, oh, I don't know if this is exactly what I want to do. But pretty soon after that, as I got to know Mr. Shaw, I just, he became such a constant influence for good in my life. Um, and I would work really hard to be prepared for my lessons. And he won me over. So mm -hmm. it didn't take, it didn't take very long, but he has such such a neat uh, gift to connect with people. Mm. It makes it sound like he wasn't super strict or anything, but was he actually? I mean, did you had did he prescribe specific <laughs> things you had to work on, exercises and all that? Yeah. Well, we had we had the circle of fifths, so we'd go through all the scales every day, and we'd do the scales and arpeggios. And um, there was there was a time when he had to talk to me because I wasn't practicing like <laughs> I should. And I just remember I went home and I wrote, I still have the piece of paper. I wrote on this piece of paper my decision that I was going to practice the violin and that I was going to work and I was going to learn 
as much as I could. And then every day that week, I was pretty good at practicing. And then I went back to my lesson the next week and he said, I can tell you decided to become a violinist this week. Oh. And I went home and I wrote another note just to write it down. I'm a journal keeper. So, but I just remember that just, that was a big moment for me. I think making the decision, he really, he expected it, but he was also so friendly. He was a very jovial, like he'd make jokes with you and um, just a really wonderful, wonderful person. It's funny because I would say I was about the same age as, as you when I decided I would really become a violinist too. You know, I'd been playing since I was four, but it's interesting. I, I'm, I'm not sure most kids can really decide that until they get to, to those teenage years. You know, it's when you're making decisions for yourself. So for you, it was earlier on in the process, but then um, you do, you, you've got both of those notes? I do. Wow. Yeah. I don't have much from, <laughs> from that age. <laughs> Still saved. Um, so then what, what did you do with that? I mean, did, did you, how much were you practicing at that point? And did you have to start practicing more because of that or what? I think it was, I don't, honestly, I don't know the exact amount of time I was practicing. In my orchestra, we had uh, practice sheets. And so I remember I got to the point where I just knew I practiced an hour every day. So I'd turn in the sheet and just put one hour, one hour on all the pieces of paper. But it's kind of funny, my mom, <laughs> this is with piano and violin, I would much rather be reading a book. So in my bedroom, if I was on my bed in the corner, I could kind of hide and still read my book and my mom couldn't find me. I'm <laughs> sure she knew where I was all the time, but should I say, where's Kirsten? Kirsten, it's time to practice. And so I, I would just stay in my room as long as possible. And then I would bring my book with me and I did this with both instruments. Um, I'd put the book on the stand or on the keyboard and while I'd be practicing my skills, I'd be reading. So it was a nice little transition to, uh, from reading to practicing. That's an old trick, by the way. I used <laughs> to do okay. that. Uh, <laughs> used to do that too. I'd have magazines. Nice. Because they stayed open easier. Oh, good thinking. <laughs> um, some kids, yeah, some kids tried playing recordings. I, I don't think that works as well. Yeah. <laughs> you need that live practicing element. <laughs> it's unmistakable. Um, well, were you at the point then where this is what you wanted to do in school and and beyond did you make your school decision based on that yeah so i was in a lesson with mr shaw and he he just said in this one lesson he said you know you remind me of this girl that was a violin performance major and i hadn't ever heard of that before but as soon as he said that i just knew that that's what i was going to do it was just like oh okay yeah that's that's what i'm going to do so I feel really lucky because I know a lot of people, they change majors all the time, and, but that's, that's what I did. That's what I chose to do. And so by the time you went to college, I mean, had you spent much time with, with kids your own age who were just as serious as you, or were you still kind of the big fish where you were? I was still kind of the big fish. I, it was kind of interesting. I had to be in the freshman orchestra when I was a freshman, and that year at regionals, I got the highest score out of anyone in the whole school. And this is freshman in high school? Uh -huh, freshman in high school, yeah. 
And so, um, so there was, with Mr. Shaw, there was actually a really, a really great group of students. Um, he had, he, I don't know how many students he taught, but I think it was at least 20, which for our town is pretty great. And, um, but I, I, I think I always would rise to the occasion, like getting to junior high. I remember <laughs> I'd been the concert master in elementary school, and then I got to junior high, and this is right before I started studying with Mr. Shaw, and they, uh, I was like on eighth chair, and I was just devastated. I was like, oh, what? What is this? You know? And then it was just interesting working with Mr. Shaw. I, after the like into the third term, I was the concertmaster, and then I would just, yeah, I, I think I was always a leader in um, my orchestras in high school. So how was college different? Where, and where did you go for, for our listeners? Yeah, so I went to Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff. It's right by the Grand Canyon. And it was really, it was great going to school. I just remember just seeing how much more you could do. Um, I think because I had been the big fish, realizing, oh wow, you can, oh, it's just a whole world. It's a whole world out there. and. I was in the back of the second violin section, mm -hmm. and we had this orchestra director, Victor Leva. Um, he, I can't remember what piece we were playing, but he got frustrated and he said, you guys need to learn this. And so he said, if you don't learn this, if you don't learn it well enough, then I'm gonna make you stand up and play it one by one. Mm -hmm. And so I did not want that to happen. So I practiced and practiced and got to rehearsal apparently it wasn't good enough so he had the last three of us um i don't think we had to stand but yeah he made us play it and the other two fell out and i was the last one playing but of course it's so humiliating yeah and so anyway so then i wasn't gonna let him beat me with that so i went back to the practice room and I practiced and practiced. I memorized it. And then the next time in rehearsal, I was like looking up at him and playing. And it's like, you're not going to like, yeah, I'm not going to settle. So <laughs> That actually, I think, happened to us at uh, rehearsal at the L.A. Phil today. We, <laughs> we had a passage in John Adams that we, uh, we, we didn't end up going down the line one by one. But uh, we had the first violins alone slowly over and over again with John Adams right there, oh, so. That's intense. You know, it's not, you had the, the mature attitude is the one <laughs> you had where you're like, okay, well, then I'm gonna go into the practice room and the, the, uh, the immature attitude is, wow, that conductor is a real jerk. <laughs> I mean, it is motivating. There's a reason why most middle school conductors employ that technique, but yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of a, yes, mo very motivating because of course you don't wanna be shamed or humiliated yeah, in or, front of your peers. Yeah, you don't want to not do your part. Like you're mm -hmm. supposed to know how to play this. And if you don't, I just think, I think that's a benefit of playing with a group is that you can lift each other. But, um, mm. but it can also be, I guess, depending on the group, you know, the, what can happen. Exactly. Well, were you finally, I'm, I'm waiting for the part where, uh, you know, you had to get stuck with people around that were better than you because that was 
<laughs> a big well, part of my they, college experience. Yeah, well, they were, I, I, they were better than me when I got to school. Like they, they, they all were. Um, I was at the very back of the section. There was a, um, so that freshman year was a really big year for me. I won a concerto competition for the community orchestra back in my hometown, and I played the Haydn Violin Concerto, and I uh, memorized it and all three movements, and so that was that was huge for me, a huge opportunity to learn a, a big piece, and my teacher told me, um, Louise Scott, who was amazing, who actually I think she took your former teacher's job, because oh. he used to teach at NAU. Okay. So, yeah. So she told me that out of all the students she'd ever taught, I had made the most progress in a year out of anyone. So I felt like that was a really huge compliment. Um, but I think also just having the environment, I really needed, I needed the environment so I knew how to do all the things that you need to do. Well, and what happened when you left school and it's, uh, did you go to grad school then? Yeah, so I went to the University of Utah and got a master's degree also in performance. And then when I graduated, I didn't feel like I was done. Again, I wrote in my little journal, I don't feel like I'm done yet. I don't feel like I'm done learning. And so I kept working with my teacher and then I worked with a couple other teachers. Um, we're getting to the part where I am with the people that are way better than me. So. Um, <laughs> I followed a teacher to Le Domaine Forger in Quebec, and that was the first time I was, like, I'd, I'd gone to summer festivals, like I'd gone to Brevard, North Carolina, and they were all, they, that was great too. Um, but I, when I was at Le Domaine Forger, I just remember feeling so, um, I don't know if it's like, less than. I had the hardest time playing out. Mm. The people that lived in my little house, they were all amazing. Mm. Like, and I just would, you know, I'm here to practice. I'm here to learn. But I just, it was so hard to get out what I needed to. And, um, and it was really interesting. There was this little practice hut there. And um, I walked in and on all the walls, I wish I'd taken a picture, but on all the walls, there's all these words of what people saying, like, I don't feel good enough. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm like all these, all their doubts, all their concerns, all, I was like, this is why this place feels so thick with mm. like, it's like, it's so interesting because it was the highest level of people I'd been around, but yet it was also the thickest in terms of this, the doubt that was going around. Well, first of all, I want a practice hut. That sounds really <laughs> awesome. <laughs> what, second, what what do you mean that the words were on the walls? Are they like scrawled in pencil? Yeah, the, like pencil, pen. Yeah, it was just this plywood walls, and people just wrote all these, right. all their concerns, all their their doubts. And and I, it was interesting. I told my mom, I was like, mom, I want to quit the violin. And she's like, well, it's too late to do that now. <laughs> and so it was, it was really, it was interesting, but it's, it really happened. Um, did you end up adding anything to the walls? No, I didn't. But, but it was, it was really, it was a really 
um, refining experience mm. for me. And I met a teacher there that, um, her name is Marianne Piketty, she's from France, who was so amazing. And I just had her for a week, but what happened in that week by the time I had my third lesson, I was playing the Tchaikovsky violin concerto, and she just had me kind of, I guess I was anxious. I didn't know it until <laughs> that moment. But um, she had me like go into my heart and play, and it was really beautiful. She had to do it a second time and a third time, and each time I got better. But it was the third time. It was the most amazing experience. It was like this music was pouring outside of me. I had it all memorized. I didn't know I had it memorized, but I did. And it was a really incredible experience. Yeah, one of those times where you you ask, uh, why can't it always be this way? I know, I'm like <laughs> still trying to do that. <laughs> it's like, if I can do that, why am I playing some other way? Yeah, yeah. Well, when you were done with, uh, when you were done at Utah, um, how did you sort of decide to enter the real world? Did you have a, a plan right away for what came next? No, I had no clue how you <laughs> survive as a musician. I, I had, so, so I decided to stay in Salt Lake. Um, I figured it'd be easier for me to stay there and build connections with people than move to a new place and have to start all over again. Mm -hmm. So I stayed there and... Well, let me ask you this. Did you make a lot of connections outside school while you were, while you were doing your graduate work? I was starting to. And um, it, was, it was really interesting. So after I graduated, I had, I'd had scholarships um, all seven years of school. And I had this realization that I was going to have to pay for my life <laughs> <laughs> on my own before I graduated. And so um, how I did that was I was teaching violin lessons. Um, it, was, it felt really hard to get into the gig scene, but I realized a couple years later that it was because the economy was down. Mm -hmm. And so people weren't hiring as much. So I, I was teaching and then I would try to get gigs different places. I realized that people would be more likely to hire a single violinist instead of a quartet. So I just started playing at a lot of assisted living centers, like, hey, I do solo violin. And um, so that was really cool to see how that helped me along the way. And then to answer the, this next question, um, as far as meeting people, I, I met people in my orchestra. I play in the orchestra at Temple Square, and they, we accompany the Tabernacle Choir. So there's a lot of people there that I get to interact with. But um, as far as like fellow violinists, it wasn't, I wasn't, well, I mean, besides my friends, right? Because I have some good friends there. But, but I think getting to that higher level of playing, um, I was looking for that. I was looking for inspiration to help me grow. Well, I, I think that's very hard to do outside of a studio environment, mm -hmm. you know, just looking for it on your own. Um, and especially back then, you know, you, you either have to go to live concerts or you can listen to 
audio recordings, but you know, YouTube wasn't around at that point. And so if you, you know, if you wanted to see other people play, you, you, you actually had to see them live or you could buy a, I don't know, laser disc back then, mm -hmm. <laughs> VHS. Um, and yeah, it's been my experience, you know, orchestras, even the, the really good ones, usually not the place to talk about how to get better as a player. There's, mm -hmm. there's almost a code that, uh, you know, we don't, let's talk about restaurants or let's, you know, complain mm -hmm. about conductors, but don't, you know, don't make me talk about how to practice or, you know. Um, so it sounds like you had a similar experience. Yeah. Um, did you have an, an expensive life at that point to pay for or was it pretty simple? I, uh, it was pretty simple. I remember, well, I would go to the symphony and I would watch the musicians and I'd just watch their bow arm, watch how they play, you know, just trying to glean as much as I could. Um, but my, my main bills were paying for my rent. I had to buy a car, <laughs> so I had some car payments and um, lessons that I was taking. So how did you find a teacher? Or did you continue with? So I studied with the teacher I did my grad school mm -hmm. work with, and then I studied with his wife. I did a chamber music program at the University of Utah during the summer, and his wife led it, and she was amazing. And so I was like, I want to work with her. And so I worked with her, and I prepared a recital with her, and then she said, okay, I think you're ready to do this on your own. But to me, I was like, I'm not ready. Like, I'm, like, I still know there's more for me to learn. Like, there's, there's more, I just felt like there was more inside. So I do think it was good that I had a little break. So I had to kind of figure out just what I want. And I still wanted to obviously learn violin and keep learning. When, at this point, if you're kind of dividing your time, you played some in orchestra, you played solo programs um, at assisted living centers and things like that. Do, where did you, did you have a bigger dream at that point? Did you, you know, just say, I really want to be in a professional orchestra or? Yeah, I, it's been interesting. My big dream has always been to get as good as I could on the violin. And um, so I think whatever kind of fits into that pathway, um, I think I've been willing to take the opportunities to help me go beyond. Mm -hmm. Well, and we're gonna talk about your big project that you've been working on for the last few years. Um, but it's interesting, do you feel like even that was inspired by you wanting to be the best you could be? Was, was, the, was your project really a way to further that or the other way around? I think, I think it could be both. So with my project, um, I'm about to release my first solo violin album and I just one day I had this impression come to my mind that I was going to make a CD and it was kind of this like surprise <laughs> I was like oh okay what's it going to be about and then the next thought that I had was that it would be about light and in that moment when I had this idea it kind of it was really exciting 
It also came with this, um, not a bad weight, it was just like this understanding that I would also need to improve my skills so that I could create this project at the level that it needed to be to kind of match what the feeling was that came with it. And so, um, so at that time, I just, I just started gathering um, ideas. It was simmering for quite a long time. And yeah, how long ago was this? So it was now 11 years ago. All right. Yeah, so it was 11 years ago. And um, yeah, a big piece was I needed to get my violin playing in a better place. And were, were you finding that your lessons and your own practicing was not enough at that point? Or you, were you feeling like you were making steady progress? I was, I was making steady progress uh, with the teachers I was working with. And then there was that time when I just needed, basically I didn't have a teacher anymore. And so I took a couple lessons with the concert master of the Utah Symphony, Ralph Matson, And um, then I went to the ASTA conference actually. And I, I played without a shoulder rest. Um, just like you, mm -hmm. and um, I went to the presentation. So I was still looking, like I was still looking for how am I gonna get better? Just there's, there's still more for me. And uh, Kate, I'm just curious, I mean, did you, I think everybody has this point once they get out of school. I mean, does, does any of this sound familiar to once you left school and kind of like, how am I gonna Am I going to keep getting better? <laughs> <laughs> that is the um, reason for the master's degree and the graduate certificate. <laughs> Just don't leave school. <laughs> and then and then BMC. <laughs> yeah, that's one answer is just to stay in school as long as possible. <laughs> it's funny, though, about not talking about getting better at work, because um, I've, I've always I I always want to know how to get better at anything. And um, so that must be why people always looked at me kind of weird <laughs> at work. But um, I feel like we're, we're lighting a spark under all these professional violinists who are going off to their jobs and talking about practicing. And then, um, and so maybe that, that'll be a trend that changes. That would be great. I, uh, I, I, I have my, my folks at work that I nerd out with. So <laughs> there are always a few in every group. Um, well, I know that you're, progress on, on your light project, you know, accelerated the further on it went. Where did our, where and how did our paths cross uh, and what, what sort of brought us into each other's orbit and, and what was the, the thing that sort of decided you that you were going to do the crazy thing of working with someone that you'd never met? <laughs> yeah, so I was looking for opportunities to expand and I was playing in a quartet, and the cellist, um, she knew someone in the LA Phil, and so I was just telling her, I, I just need to grow, I just, I need more. I wasn't feeling like there was a teacher in Salt Lake for me. And so I, my friend said, hey, how about we go to this concert? She knew the, a violist in the orchestra, and so, um, he arranged, he couldn't be there, he wasn't in town, and so he arranged for a violinist in the orchestra to pick us up. So we met at the zoo, which I thought, okay, who, that's amazing to like 
someone that I feel gives me a ride to this orchestra rehearsal. <laughs> and um, so we went to the rehearsal, it was at the Hollywood Bowl. And I, I remember actually looking and seeing you play, you were sitting concert master for that concert. And I remember noticing your bow holds and being really impressed with it. And so then we went back, we were headed back to the zoo and I just thought, okay, this is now or never. This is my chance to ask if there's someone I could work with. So I asked her, is there anyone here that, that in LA that you think I could work with that would be a great violin teacher? And she said, well, there's um, Nathan Cole. He has Nate's violin. He's um, was our concert yesterday. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah. So she told me about your It'll website. <laughs> yeah, like, okay, great. There's my clue. I'm going to follow it. So um, I looked up your website and I was just so happy to see that you said you would, that you liked, or you would work with anyone, no matter where they were, um, what, um, yeah, no matter where they were in their playing, you felt like you could work with them and help them. And I just remember being so excited about that because I felt like, hey, someone that can take me where I am, because I, like, yeah, I, I was good at the violin, but I, again, knew that there was more that I could develop. And so, so I sent you an email. <laughs> and I wrote back. And you wrote back. Eventually. Eventually, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, uh, I remember being so excited and I was like, I would love to have a violin lesson with you. Can I come and take a lesson with you? And, and when you wrote back and you said yes, I was so happy. And then it took, it was a matter of like coordinating when it was going to right. happen. And so... Let me say, I would have written back right away <laughs> if I knew how nice you were to work it. with. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. They say, let patients have a perfect work. And so yeah. it, was, it was all uh, accumulating. So, <laughs> so yeah, so I remember you wrote me back and you said, hey, will you be in, uh, will you be in town this weekend? And I didn't have a plane ticket or anything, but I wrote back and I'm like, yes, I will. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so that, was, that was really great. To come. I remember I was at the airport and actually was on the shuttle. I was talking to some people that were on the plane and they're like, oh, so what are you here for? And I was like, oh, I'm here for a violin lesson. And they were really excited for me. I was really excited. And it's cool because um, so that was the beginning. That was the beginning of me getting to work with you. And um, I remember the first lesson we were doing playing Mozart A major. And you just talked about having one note, playing one note that was what I wanted it to be. Mm. So, I mean, that's a really great foundation to start with from and doing the rest of the work I've done with you. Yeah, I do often think about that. I mean, right, I always ask myself, can I play one note that sounds like Pifitz or, or whoever? And, uh, you know, when I played golf too, golf I think is a little nicer in that way because anybody can make a long, beautiful putt like Tiger Woods or whoever. <laughs> Um, you know, and you could call it luck or whatever, but it, it, I mean, some things on the instrument and in sports just are easy once you let them happen. And then it's just a matter of putting them together into different combinations. But no, you always understood that, which is great. Um, and at that point, we were just doing some lessons and it was not too long after that, I think, that I decided I wanted to, to start working in a more comprehensive way with people and that that eventually became the virtuoso master course and and uh, 
both of you were were part of that <laughs> that we very were first studio mates. Yeah, we were were we oyster trucks. I think so. Yeah, yeah. At that point, Nathan was um, he named each of the studios after uh, after famous violinists, and so. Yeah, I, I wanted uh, my my idea was that right we there there would be two studios in the the VMC and yeah you you were both in the the same one because you were you know playing concertos and and potentially taking auditions and that sort of thing um, now we do things a little differently we we mix everyone together more but back then it was a right a stricter separation so do do you guys remember interacting and oh my god so, yes um, Kirsten I mean you can tell by just listening to her she makes everyone happy around her, <laughs> you know? It's like, I, I, I can just see you on the shuttle and everybody's <laughs> cheering that you're taking a violin lesson. <laughs> um, but um, I remember really clearly, I was working on Brahms' uh, Haydn Variations and um, it's a, you know, and Kirsten suggested I dance to it because I'm a uh, avid adult learner ballerina. And, I'm glad um, you didn't say adult dancer. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Bookmark that. I, I'm full of them. <laughs> but um, I um, and I knew the waltz step in in ballet is like really tricky because nobody ever teaches. Anyway, I won't. Nobody ever teaches the little upbeat step. They only teach the down up up step. They don't teach the and down up up. But um, so I got on YouTube and I was looking at videos and trying to figure out how to waltz step. And then I took a video of myself dancing and playing it and sent it to Kirsten. <laughs> And she sent me an you know an email back with hearts and stars and just <laughs> the light just comes through the computer whenever you <laughs> interact with her. So I have so many special memories of being on this journey with you. Thank you. Likewise, it's um it's been really fun and it's been cool to see how from that very first BMC when we were working in our studio class, um, just kind of how Kate stepped up and something happened where we we're gonna have to have it shorter and like all of us were distraught like what like we want to keep working with Nathan and Kay's like oh I'm, I'm gonna talk to Nathan or she's like I talked with Nathan I was like <laughs> you talked with Nathan about that and she did and it's just so cool because like to look back at that time and now to see like what it's become it's really amazing it's really amazing well I remember you had um, I mean you were focused on your um, album mm -hmm. all the way from back then what were what were some of the steps you were taking at that point I, I remember that you were you know choosing repertoire and we were working on mm -hmm. some of the mm -hmm. repertoire that would be in there but but I think the actual you know the place that you had recorded and the commissioning and money raising that was still a little bit in the future at that point yeah so when I started working with you the album was still, um, I was trying to, yeah, trying to figure out what to put on it. Yeah, it is a very interesting process, getting the different pieces that came along on it. Um, originally I was going to do like a hymn-based album. I was like, oh, there's lots of light in hymns. But I played a concert and I played the Spiegel im Spiegel by Pert. And mm. someone said they wished they had a recording of me playing that. And all of a sudden it just shifted. And I realized, oh, 
yeah, I, I'm going to put that on there. And then I started thinking of different pieces where I could sense this light. So the Brahms Sonata is, um, mm -hmm. that slow movement is a piece that I did put on there and we worked a lot on that. Um, and so little by little, even um, we had a VMC recital and I played a piece I'd never, you'd never heard me play before. It was the Intermezzo Sinfonico from the Calvary Resticana. And after I played it, you asked me, oh, are you gonna put that on your album? And I, at, up to that point, I wasn't. But when you said that, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, I think I am. And it's really cool because I was able to uh, record that with the English Symphony Orchestra and it's on my album, so. Yeah, tell, tell us about the recording process and you know who you, who you worked with, where this happened, because this was just, at this point, maybe, was it already nine months ago? Yeah, so VMC has a big part uh, in how I got over to England. So I was looking for a producer. I wasn't finding one. Someone said, oh, my brother-in-law produces bands. And <laughs> I talked with him, and I was like, oh, no, 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 I cannot do that. <laughs> And um, so I talked with you, Nathan, about, um, I need a producer. So Nathan said, hey, I'll, I'll email some people in town and see if any of them might be willing to be your producer. And they didn't respond back to you. And we were talking about this in studio class. And I was in a breakout group with um, Daff, who is from England. And um, I hopped on a call, and the first thing he said in this call was you should look into James Innes's producer and as soon as he said that I was like oh yeah because James had come and talked to us during the Biolympics and talked about recording during the pandemic and how much he loved his producer so when Daft said that I just it was like this path that was lit up for me mm. and um, so I went to James website found out who his producer was and then I sent his producer Simon Kiln a message saying, hey, I'm, I'm looking for some help. Um, I'm working on this project. I, it's a project I commissioned, I've commissioned several pieces for, and can you help me? And so he wrote back and said, you know, it sounds like you have an interesting project, project let's talk. And so then um, the next day he's like, hey, do you have any music samples? I was a little bit nervous because <laughs> like, <laughs> this is my audition. And so, um, so I sent him some samples of my playing and then we talked and he said, you know, um, I, I would love to work with you. And mm -hmm. again, it was this path and it was, you know, for so long I'd been building up to getting this project along. And when he said he would love to work with me, it just felt like it was really going to happen. And so we ended up um, recording it in England. Um, the theme, he said because of the theme of this project, he thought it would be best to record in a church or in a hall. And since he's from England, he knows the halls there the best. So um, the first, so I went over in November and recorded with a pianist. So half the album is with piano. And um, the second half I recorded in February of this year with the English Symphony Orchestra. We recorded in this beautiful hall, it's a Wystone Hall in it's on the border of wales it's, it's on this estate and um part of the estate is in wales and the other the actual hall is in england hmm. wow and so 
do you remember your the first notes you played there? What what did that feel like to realize, oh, this is gonna be the sound of the album? Yeah, I remember I walked in and I was actually videoing this and so it's kind of fun to go back and listen. But I walked in and I said, Oh, it has a really nice ring to it. And then Simon said, Oh yeah, it has this acoustic, it's it's this sound. I can't remember what what note it's centered around, but he knew the notes that this hall was centered around. And um, it was interesting to play in the hall. I think just when you play anywhere, you have to get used to the space because your instrument, it becomes part of your instrument. And so I just remember playing and trying to connect to the sound and you know, finding the end of the space to see how far mm. I was playing out. But yeah, it was like really- you're playing with the hall. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And I, it was a really special experience. So I had my pianist, Michael Carker Young, and then I had my producer, Simon Kiln, and then also my, the co-producer, my co-producer, Donald Fraser, who's um, a British Academy Award winning composer. One of the pieces I needed an arrangement for was the Nimrod, um, Algar variation. And so Simon knew that Don was really great at writing Elgar arrangements, so he asked if Don it's would. Pretty niche. <laughs> yeah. Well, he actually owns the home that Elgar owned when he wrote his cello concerto. Oh, wow. So it was like he's like the man for Elgar. So, um, so yeah. So we, he ended up writing several of the arrangements for the orchestra, and so it was really fun to have him there as well. And yeah, it was a really really special experience. I remember I'd, I'd actually gone to England a couple of months before and I met up with Simon for the first time and I just said, hey, can you, can you give me some advice on recording? Like I've done studio work, I've made, you know, lots of studio work stuff, but um, like this is my first solo project and can you give me some advice? And he gave me kind of a list, but then he said the thing that stood out to me the most is to know your weaknesses. And so I took that and I learned some really cool things about that. Like if you know your weaknesses, they're not weaknesses anymore because you like know um, like all the area surrounding it. You have more knowledge after that. So yeah, so that was just really, really cool. Yeah, I'd say that definitely applies to auditions, you know, mm -hmm. for, for people taking orchestra auditions too. If you mm -hmm. know those tendencies, whether you want to call them weaknesses or, or whatever, um, you can learn to conceal them, <laughs> at yeah. least until you can strengthen them. Mm -hmm. And so where are you now with the album? I mean, all the recordings are done. Um, is editing done? Have you been able to hear the final cut? Yeah, so something was really amazing is, it was intense. So Simon, um, he asked me in November, he said, were you, did you expect it to be like this? And I was like, oh yeah, it's, it's like, it's fine, it's good, you know? Like I, I didn't feel like I was overwhelmed by mm -hmm. the situation, uh, the recording. <laughs> and then when I was recording with an orchestra, that was kind of a completely different experience. I was really glad that I had had the recording earlier to kind of get used to it, but I think the pressure of playing with the orchestra was it just was so much more. There's a lot of people, everyone's waiting on you. And, and um, but something that was really amazing as I was in that recording session is um, 
I just felt like I belonged. Mm. I was standing in front of the orchestra and just this moment where I'm realizing I belong here. Like mm. this, this is like my place. And so it was, it was really amazing to have that experience. And did, uh, did Simon, I mean, how much interaction was there from where he was and where you were? Was, was there a lot of encouragement or direction? Yeah. So Simon always says that he always tries to say the least amount as possible, just kind of stay out of the way. And um, in the recording in November, it was actually on the Brahms. I, <laughs> those, those chords. Um, <laughs> I, I was just like, I, I don't know if I can do this. And Don is like, yes, you can. You can do this. You've got this. And then at that point, Simon said, okay, I, I need this and I need this. And so he just came in and said in everything he needed. And it was so helpful because I didn't have to do it all. I just did what he said he needed. And, and so, so that was kind of from, a, from the November experience. In March, um, they brought in also Arna Acklesberg, who worked at Abbey Road. So Simon and Arna worked at Abbey Road for 25 years together. Mm -hmm. And um, that was really cool to have him there. And so they were in the sound booth, and they would call out to say the things that needed to be changed or different. Um, but again, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't like they were talking a ton to me, just when they needed something, if it was like something really specific, they would say, say what they needed. Well, that's perfect. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's always so reassuring that uh, if someone says what they need, then you can, yeah, rest assured that, that, that they've got the rest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I remember you telling me, or maybe I'm misremembering, so correct me if I'm wrong. Um, Simon said something like, you just play or like you just oh, play yeah. it I'll take care of the rest or something yeah. like like really just yeah so it was actually Arna so oh. it was um we were at dinner and he said don't worry you just play <laughs> we've got you mm. we're here supporting you just we're here for you and um it was really cool um talking with Arna after dinner Arna and Don we were visiting and Arna said, you know, what you've done here, we're all so impressed. He said, we've, we've been in this industry for a very long time and we haven't seen something like this. Like with putting this project together, um, I think commissioning, so I commissioned four pieces and there's eight new arrangements and four other pieces. But so it was just, it was really cool all crowdfunded, him. by the way, right? Yeah. So <laughs> I did. I did a Kickstarter for the second half, but I did. I raised a lot of the money to pay for the commissions, and um, I did a lot of like house concerts, outside concerts during COVID. That was kind of rough. Talk about <laughs> fundraising during COVID. <laughs> no one's going to concerts. So. But you had yeah. so much experience, you know, playing those solo shows. Yeah, I did. When you were in school. I did. Yeah. So I feel like. It was really easy for me to put those together because I would play them. And I just have this bag of music and I'll just play whatever songs. I learn songs on the job sometimes. It's now, now I know my books better. But, um, but yeah, I, I was used to that. So it was something um, that was really helpful as I was trying to fundraise um, because I, 
could engage my audience. And, and then it was really exciting because I have this big project and um, yeah. Well, let's, let's uh, finish. I'd love for everyone to understand how it is that you and Kate have worked together in the Virtuoso Master Course because um, Kate, you know, has, I'm going to put air quotes around, graduated from uh, being just a violist to <laughs> actually helping all the violinists and violists in the, in the VMC to realize their goal. Well, first of all, to, to set the goals if they're not used to doing that on their own, which, which you already were, Kirsten, but then to, to really help hold everyone accountable and to uh, help everyone follow a, a plan and, and make sure they, they reach those goals of course, with, with my help on the, the violin or viola side, but um, maybe, Kate, if you'd like to talk about some things you that come to mind, especially from this most recent VMC where you've helped people plan from the beginning. Oh, gosh. Um, Kirsten's a special case because I've known her since day one. Um, so we talk a lot, and it's not always as formalized as a strategy session, um, which I have with each participant. Uh, we go over hopes and dreams and bucket list uh, items and and break down the steps on how to get there. And then it's also an opportunity for me to speak with you and kind of keep you posted on, on what people are doing. And I mean, something that came to mind earlier, I, I feel like I remember you saying you wanted to get better at playing sixths. And then I mentioned that to Nathan and then he suggested a piece and then Next thing we knew, there was like a workout about six, and it just kind of like, um, it kind of snowballed. And that's like now I just, every time I think about double stops, I'm like, oh yeah, Kirsten, let's like, I know that she's honing that skill. Um, not that that's your whole uh, skill set. <laughs> I mean, that is a really good skill set. It is you, a really can, good skill set. You can play those double stops. Um, and I guess my... It's kind of not addressing your question, Nathan. Because um, I, I just, sitting here listening to you, Kirsten, I'm just so struck by what a incredible human you are. And um, it's like nobody but you could do this. Yeah. I mean, people can do it. People can do it. That's the thing. Lots of people can do it. I'm not, I'm not the only one, but I think there's so many obstacles. Like, I've faced all the obstacles, too. But, like... There's so many, like, everyone's amazing, really. Yeah. And just getting them, like, the help, the guidance, I think, is a huge factor in success. Well, you see that in people, and I think that's part of what has always made me feel connected to you. Um, I like to see that, too. And it's like, I, I, I really like to cheer people on. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're a major cheerer honor. <laughs> Like, I would say a, an ideal VMC participant in many ways, just um, really wanting to um, speak up for what, what will be most useful and what would be most supportive. And then it's like, I'm so thrilled to provide it if I can. Yeah, Kate, you've been incredible. Um, I know whenever I've had a concern or, like, I wanted to work on the third, six, and octaves. I, we, uh, I got to play in the master class for Noah Bendix Bogley, and... That was amazing, and he said that every day he practices his third, six, and octaves. And so, so I decided I'm gonna I'm gonna really work on these and um, focus in on them. And and so I had the mini VIP session with Nathan, and I 
I was like, hey, can can we can we do this? And then yes, we did that, and now yeah. I can play that piece. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, you've always been so great about uh, listening to people and wanting to know what people need. Um, you want to support people along the way, and I think you care so much about about people, like not just their playing, but their lives as well. Mm -hmm. And so I think that really makes for a really, it helps create a really special environment um, because I think you get all these people that are passionate about what they're doing. They wanna learn more. And then um, creating an environment where it's safe to learn. You don't have to worry about what other people think about you or like all those reasons why people don't play out. Like you don't have to worry about that here. Um, because, because it's just about being and I think being real. It's a special community and like over the years it's grown more and more, um, it's, it's really vibrant actually the alumni community also just, we have maybe 60 folks, uh, maybe a little less than that, who are just like all part of the family. <laughs> but um, it's, it's different from going to work and not being able to talk about trills or, uh, you know, like, it's, it's different. We have a community of people who, there will be, if you want to talk about trills, there are people who will talk to you, <laughs> you know. There's people, like, you can get on a Zoom and, and like, practice trills together if you want to. So um, I think that's, it's created, I, I feel like just one, 10 violinists, 30 violinists at a time, like, we're, we're like, could change the world <laughs> with all like this great this great community spirit kind of sharing a, a love of the instrument and the skill set and Nathan is such a brilliant brilliant pedagogue it's just um, it's it's really a special situation yeah. well and when when you talk about uh, caring about I, I'm laughing just because Kirsten when you tell people how to pronounce your name <laughs> not always obvious just from seeing it but you always mention that it's uh, rhymes with care the first part yeah um, I have to or else care bears forever <sighs> suffer I do it on your behalf now <laughs> like oh actually it's Kirsten like care bear <laughs> no, but, you know the I think when you think about or care about someone's whole life um, you know that that is what's going to be best for their playing as well. Because it's just, it's hard, if not impossible, to tackle these problems on the violin or viola in a vacuum. Uh, that, that's not, for most people, that's not enough motivation. Um, but, you know, so whether they have a specific project in mind, as you did, or, you know, just want to be the best they can be, as you also did, you had both of those motivations. Um, you know, thinking about how someone's life is going to be different because they have achieved or they can see a way forward to achieving what they want on the instrument, what they want to be as an artist. Um, that is, is much healthier and it's, it's a way to faster and more total progress as well. So, you know, I'm, I'm so happy to, to have you in an official capacity, Kate, <laughs> doing that, but then, you know, also Kirsten, it's a, you don't even have to do that. It's not your responsibility, but you do it for. You can't help it. For all, all the other people in the VMC too. So that's it. Thank you. I've been really happy to have you for for all of them. Thank you. Um, and I have to say that you also create that, Nathan. I think you. I think 
so many of the obstacles of learning an instrument, like, well, probably any instrument, but our instruments specifically, is I think, I just think you need, like we're trying to create music here, we're trying to create something that is so personal, uh, that's it's our identity, I think, and to have you be so compassionate and like you don't, like you don't squirm in your seat when we all make mistakes, or at least you don't. You, you have a good poker face, but He's like got an incredible poker face. But, but like, but really, like it. Pro, your your presence provides so such a powerful uh, place to learn from, a powerful environment. Because having that space to like to learn to be able to grow, um, I think that's that's what's lacking in so many other. Um, teaching relationships, not not to say that all teachers are bad, like I'm not saying that, but like you hold a space for people so that they can learn and that they don't have to be stuck with um, how they used to play or how they don't want to play. Mm. Yeah, I would I would second that. It's a it's like a a unique ability to depersonalize and still be personable <laughs> like to make it not about what um how i've failed because i can't play the way i think i should be able to play and it's more about um oh well let's let's work on that i did that just today i was i was like i can't get this um you know this spiccato thing coordinated and i was about to put the viola down i'm like well let's just see if we can figure out why <laughs> and you know it's like i have a little nathan on my shoulder um like reminding me to to like take a breath and and let's just see if if we can do some like it it doesn't have to be agony to get better at the instrument <laughs> that, there you slogan. go there's their tagline <laughs> doesn't have to be agony. it doesn't have to be agony <laughs> well. nathan cole <laughs> no I, I thank you both so much for coming out here tonight and uh, being part of this fun in-person yeah. gathering, yeah. in-person conversation. We're in the and... same Zoom room. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, we're, it's getting to that time of year, uh, you know, we're going to start the next Virtuoso Master Course in the new year. So um, if you're out there listening and, and you want to know more about it and maybe even look into becoming part of the next one, just uh, drop Kate a line, actually, Kate at natesviolin.com. So that's K-A-T-E at natesviolin.com. And we can, we can start taking care of you. Um, but yeah, I'm going to be seeing you, Kirsten, tomorrow in person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I look forward to that. So yeah, can't wait to see what you've, what you've brought me. Thanks. And, I think it's going to be good. <laughs> I know it's going to be good. Well, and thanks to all of you. Thanks for tuning back in for the new season of Stand Partners for Life. So come back next time. Thanks, Nathan. Thanks, Nathan. Thanks, Nathan.